0: Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Scottish Games Network podcast. I am Andrew, and with me, as always, this week is the main man, Brian. Good afternoon. And Ryan as well. You forgot to mention YouTube Sensation, but hello, how you doing? Ah, of course, yeah. YouTube Sensation and uh, Discord Wizard as well, as we've discovered recently. That's exactly it. You've you've got it there. That's (laughs) my new
1: Twitter bio right there.
2: There is an end to your talents then. Okay.
1: Yes, definitely. Like... It, it happens quite abruptly. There's not, there's not a long list of talents, unfortunately.
0: Oh, you've done a good job of convincing us otherwise so far, I would say. I'm incredible at lying. That's one of my talents.
2: <laughs> this is why we let you lead the podcast.
0: <laughs> okay, so as, as usual, let's let's have a chat about kind of what's been occupying us this week. Leisure things, not, not so much work things, but uh, has anyone been playing anything or listening to anything or reading anything or doing anything fun in particular this week? Um, um, yes. Anyone want to kick off?
1: Yeah, I've been inspired by our um, Pokemon episode a couple of weeks ago, and I went and picked up Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, because I never did at the time. And it it's an interesting experience. I don't know how I feel about it just yet. I've only just beaten Lieutenant Surge, who's the third gym leader. And essentially the big thing with this game is there's no battling in between gym leaders so like you've got like your trainers that you'll bump into in routes and gym leaders and that's the only battles you have but there's no random encounters you catch Pokemon just by throwing Pokeballs mm. at them so there's no, like no grinding yeah which sounds quite fun and seems like the are I forgot that one it. existed yeah so did that I, that's why I'm only just getting around to it now but um, yeah I thought oh, they're streamlining the process, this might be a lot of fun you know like cuts out that early game, especially, like, grinding to try and get up to, like, you know, the level of the second gym leader or whatever. But I find that, like, especially when I got up to Lieutenant Surge, I just found that most of my team was just under-leveled, and there was nothing I could do about it, because I was like, oh well, I've fought everyone that I can do. Like, there's nothing else I can do other than just, mm. you know, pray that I'm, my, my team's gonna do well enough against them but maybe i'll work out later on that there's a way around that and it's better like there's there's better balance than i think but right now it's it's a different experience i'll put it that way
0: that would have been a fascinating one to talk about uh, in regards to remasters because that's uh it's a pokemon Yeah, it's kind of a remake of that right yeah but in the context of pokemon go right they're kind of modernizing it in this odd way yeah
1: yeah the catching mechanic is the same has been like lifted exactly from pokemon go you know like there's a there's a circle around the pokemon and then there's a circle that's ever like shrinking and if you can get the pokeball in the shrinking circle the smaller it is when you get the pokeball in there the better the throw is the sort of more likely you are to catch it and so that's where like the most of the gameplay comes from Is just like catching pokemon um, there was at one point where I was trying to level up a Growlithe and I caught 10 in a row just to turn them into candy. Because that's not morbid at all for a
2: children's game. Dear yeah, bizarre. God, bizarre. I feel <laughs> old. <laughs> Listen unless Bulbasaur's in it, I'm not interested.
1: Bulbasaur Except is in it, has... it's a gen 1 remake so Bulbasaur, Charmander, Squirtle, all the good guys.
2: Well that's fine, see? That's all you had to see. <laughs> Okay, well, I will admit, hands down, I have been keeping it old school this week. I've not really been watching anything. I've not been playing anything that you haven't heard of before. Still sort of ploughing my way through Rage 2 and enjoying it. But I have been reading uh, A Little Hatred, which is the new book from Joe Abercrombie, uh, the guy who writes uh, fantasy novels, which are like Game of Thrones, but nasty.
1: Is it Game of Thrones already nasty? Oh, (laughs) yeah,
2: you've no idea. You know, he wrote the... Uh, but that's itself, in the way. of way? Uh, the Last Argument of Kings. Um, it's, it's quite political, a bit tortury, and somewhat bleak. Um, and this new one focuses on a, a very different set of uh, characters. So it's, you know, it's big sort of multi-character. Again, a little bit like Game of Thrones, but um, highly, highly recommended. If, if you really like, you know, drifting off to sleep, um, just thinking about how... Mankind is a pestilential hellhole, and that uh, we should <laughs> never ever leave the planet. It's got everything you could want and more. Perfect, Andrew. How about you? Yeah. What have you been up to?
0: I, I went back to so last one to eight uh, for a little bit over this week, uh, just because it was niggling at me that I, I, I kind of gotten stuck, uh, and I, I think having that little break kind of gave me the fresh perspective to get past the bit I was stuck at. But it's just gotten even harder and it's I'm at this thing where the the game is just so um I love the atmosphere I love when you work something out and you feel like you really you, you know, you really went through the steps and, and had a genius moment. But I'm now at the point where I'm doing a lot of randomly placing things and hoping for the best. So I think I would take a little break again and see Um the, the so, so we, we obviously we talked about this before through the light bending mechanic, you're like placing mirrors and bending light around. And, um, and so far, a lot of it has been, you know, static, you kind of set up the machine and you let it run. You know, it's like a it's like a marble run where you put all the pieces in place, you fire the light in, and it goes. But I think the thing I think I'm at a point now where you have to be moving the pieces as you go along. So maybe a piece that you used at the start where the light was going in, you need to then pick that up and move it further down the down the chain. And it's 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 a lot. <laughs> it's and you've got light coming from different angles and then they hit each other and change colours. It's a lot. So uh, I'm one. I'm, I'm hoping that it's not above me, uh, and that I will someday see see the end of the last one, two, eight. But uh, at the moment, that seems a far ways off.
2: <laughs> if you get stuck, we actually do know the developer, and we can reach him. You know, if we can't get him digitally, once it's safe to do so, we can go and kidnap him, take him to the SGN studios, and force him to play it for you live. Solve the whole thing. Yeah, you know, we could even turn that into next week's I mean, podcast.
1: There we go. <laughs> Planning my content for me, Brian. I mean, Thank way- you very much. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say, were you inspired to go back to Solus after Tom played uh, at the Playaway Festival, which links us into our first news story?
0: Uh, I-, I was. Uh, conveniently, yeah. yeah perfect. <laughs> That's all I wanted to hear. Um,
1: so, yeah, uh, we'll get into the this week's news. We first of all kicked off the week with the Playaway Festival 2021 uh, rundown. We all had a hand in this, so Brian, do you want to kick us off?
2: Yeah, well, what can we say that you haven't already heard on the podcast, seen on YouTube or read on the website? It was an incredible two weeks. The Tinderbox Collective need to be congratulated again because they pulled together something that was fascinating fun it was playful it was intelligent it was imaginative and it was really warm friendly and creative you know we had live music at the beginning end of every session they had a closing party that was genuinely one of the most fun friday nights that i think any of us have had for months and you know the 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 talks the speakers the panels everything kind of came together and it really showed an awful lot of scotland's gaming ecosystem that would never otherwise have Seen the light of the day, so big congratulations! And uh, yeah, we just wanted to pull together an article that really said, "Thanks, guys! Let's do it again next year."
1: Yeah, definitely. We all have our own piece within that article where we um, we spoke about the different things that we took away from the Playaway Festival and our personal highlights and what we liked seeing. So I think the best thing to do in this instance is instead of running through it is just tell you the link to that article is in the show notes, go check it out. That leads us on to Tuesday's article which was at Five Game Studios based in Aberdeen, my hometown. I took a bit of pride in this one, I I enjoyed this. You might notice if you read it, Um, the first couple of paragraphs is just me rambling about Aberdeen. But it seemed to do alright. It seemed like people seemed to be quite shocked. Like, wow, there's actually there's actually quite a few people up here making games, which is really nice. And yeah, like it was just it was cool for me just to see developers that I hadn't really heard of before, or didn't know what they were doing, and it gave me an opportunity just to look into that, which was oh, which is always good fun. So uh,
0: Aberdeen's Gamescom incoming. Yeah, well, it's uh, I mean we've got 4TG,
1: uh, which I've been to. I only went to the once. I guess it's ran two... So what, or two. what is that? 4TG is essentially just a local games convention that used to run out of the exhibition centre, but I don't know where they're going to be doing things now that we've got the, the big P&J live. But essentially, it was just... Uh, they invited various influencers and people people within games so like students from Abertay University came up to showcase what they were working on like you know you could like get hands on demos with games There was also speakers from um, the world of YouTube and stuff like that with like panels and stuff. It was essentially what you expect from any sort of convention with like, yeah, panels and exhibitions and like merch stalls and stuff. It was a lot of fun. Uh, They also ran a eSports competition type thing, which was like a local team took on just people that signed up. So it was like, I think it started off as an Overwatch. I think it was an Overwatch tournament to start with, uh, the year that I went at least. And yeah, just random people who had bought like tickets to specifically go and like compete with against these guys did. So it was a team of complete strangers against sort of competitive Overwatch players. It was the eggheads of gaming, if you think about it like that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was, uh, so yeah, 40G is kind of the closest thing we've got to that. Um... And Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it.
2: Well, this proved to be one of the sleeper hits of the the week when it comes to uh, the SGN news because so many people across Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland picked it up and went, really? We've got games companies? Because I think, you know, an awful lot of the the focus in the the region was on energy, oil and gas for such a long time. And finding out that there are so many and so varied uh, a number of games companies, it was truly amazing Um, eye-opening and i don't think people had appreciated that there are a couple of decently sized studios up there you know you've got brilliant brilliant skies who do from the depths and you've got firefly studios who do the stronghold games so there's a lot of people outside the central belt who are always happy to hear about new things going on with scotland's game sector so it was a great piece well put together and we're going to be replicating that across the rest of the country because believe it or not folks there is life outside dundee there's more to us than me alone.
1: The thing that really shocked me was I actually cut things from the article because, like, we we're tr- I was trying to keep it a nice rounded sort of five uh, people, like five game studios within Aberdeen. But there were some people who have studios and are currently working on stuff, or uh, there was one uh, one developer who doesn't work on video games but works on board games out in, like up here, and that was really cool. So maybe we could even do a follow up on other things in in the granite city who knows um if if people want to see that it's always i'm always happy to speak about my hometown
2: <laughs> well look this is the thing you know 4 g is a great example it's a it's a homegrown show and they had plans to take it out uh the beginning of last year i wrote a big piece saying it was going to uh, down towards the borders in the air um obviously that didn't happen with lockdown but you know it was expanding out beyond its its origins and you're absolutely right. it's there's so much going on out there and across the whole of Scotland that very, very rarely if ever gets to to you know gets recognized. So you know the the discussions that we've had, um you know five games companies in Edinburgh that don't make video games but are doing really cool stuff with tech, or, you know, it's what's happening out across the Highlands and Islands. There's some really, really interesting folk out there doing some really wonderful things. Um, and as the champions of all that is great and good, as well as, you know, mediocre and horrible um, in Scotland's games industry, I think we're. it's up to us and to be responsible and step up and make everybody sound lovely. Um, and obviously, once we had translated your piece out of Doric into, you know, something approaching English, <laughs> Um, it seemed to do quite well.
1: Okay, who's your deuce.
2: <laughs> Don't start me. It's like Google Translate was not my friend when I was doing that piece. Dude, God. I mean, I'm Scottish, but are you people from Mars or something?
1: Uh, no, we we actually come from underground. That's where Rube's Law Quarry came from. We actually burrowed <laughs> from the ground up. It, we didn't mine from the surface down. Um, yeah, that's where Aberdonians come from.
2: Okay, we're going to we're going to skip forward just before we get threatening, you know, um, emails and tweets and everything. <laughs> don't
1: From, worry, I'll translate them for you.
2: <laughs> it, Brian, is this a death threat? I don't know. It <laughs> just says fit. Uh, it's no, no, nobody knows, nobody knows. Okay, skipping forward, uh, we then uh, introduced a, a brand new piece of technology, um, pure four D which was announced uh, earlier this week by our friends at DI4D, the company formerly known as Dimensional Imaging. So they do the ultra high-res facial capture with 4K, 8K cameras. You don't need dots all over your your face. Um, they just use really high-resolution cameras and some very clever software to capture every nuance, every wrinkle, every stutter, every quaver, and every fleeting expression and they've been working in around hollywood's uh, a lot of the big sort of blockbuster movies if you've seen blade runner 2049 they did a uh, rachel the replicant who you know brought mm. sean young back to life in inverted commas not that you know sean young is dead but um the character exactly the way she looked when ridley scott shot the original um but uh, pure 4d is now aimed very specifically at the games market and it's been optimized to fit into the games pipeline very much focused on the the sort of the next generation consoles and the high-end games so this isn't something you're necessarily going to see in the casual social mobile or online space but uh, the company have already worked on things like uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare so it's only a matter of time I think before we see more Scottish technology being used in blockbuster games of the very near future.
1: Yeah this seems to be the next Mm sort of step past, like, what Uncharted was doing at the start of, like, the PS3 generation, where everyone was like, what? You you acted out everything? And that's now what the game is? Uh, and yeah, it's really cool to see the games are progressing to such a point where it's like, yeah, we can have full body capture and facial capture to, like, bring characters to life and actually sort of portray the actor's performance as well as we possibly can. And it also sort of validates the idea of becoming a video game actor. I don't even know if we should call them voice actors anymore, because so much of it is motion capture and facial capture and stuff that it's more than just voice. But yeah, like I think for a long time. Like Nolan North spoke he spoke about I've oh, spoken about it in the past, about how the reason he got into games wasn't because he was like, oh I think that this is a great industry. It was more just that no one else was going near it and he had a like a wife and kids to feed. So applying for every job going was the best way to do that but nowadays like you do have like sort of oscar nominated actors signing up to be in movie uh, in video games and stuff so i think the further we go with this technology the better it is for the industry as a whole
2: absolutely you know I, mm-hmm. we actually ran a piece towards the the end of last year or maybe around about the middle of last year a, a whole video documentary called the captured actor which our friend ian lawson um, put together for the Royal Conservatoire in Glasgow. We'll link to it in the show notes, but it really sat down with actors, with agents, with um, motion capture specialists and looked at how performing arts, students and graduates and, and actors um, should think about video games, uh, not just in, in, uh, in from film, but uh, out into the uh, storytelling centre at the National Theatre and, and a lot of the different... Performing arts hubs around the country, so absolutely worth a watch if you're interested. And uh, yeah, you're right. It, it's it's as valid and as viable for actors to go out and make a living from being in high-end video games now uh, as it was for them, you know, to to be an extra on the bill in a recurring role for 27 years when that ran. Or if you're Scottish, being in River City. God help us all.
0: Hopefully, hopefully this means we're apparently going to get LA Noir too oh that's a good shout because
1: yeah people rockstar get on it yeah because then um, the sort of uh, criticism of that game at the time was the fact that they had to have actors like almost overact for their lying, because facial capture technology just wasn't quite up to snuff to do it justice for what the plan was and nowadays like especially with yeah this technology here it could be really interesting to see
2: well i think we should pursue the scottish angle and forget this Los Angeles nonsense. I think we should do Ely Noir. <laughs> We've been talking about video games that deserve a Scottish chapter or a Scottish instalment. Ely Noir.
1: Very good, very good. Yes. Uh, I
2: like Boom! It. I sense a Twitter hashtag spat coming on.
1: Oh yeah. No, we'll need to get that done right. If I haven't added that to the the announcement that this show's went live on Twitter, then uh, everyone shout at me and we'll get that hashtag trending.
2: Splendid. Okay, let's jump forward. Uh, Andrew, the next one was yours.
0: Ah, this is on uh, Games Jobs Live. So the busy, busy people at Games Jobs Live, they now have a report about basically the all across the UK collecting. They've spent all this time collecting jobs so that they can try and get students and graduates and people already in the industry into kind of better, better careers. They've been collecting all this information anyway, so they've put it into this lovely report that basically is giving us uh insight into what the jobs market is looking like in a broad sense across the uk and so this was their first edition of that in march and main takeaways uh the industry is doing well despite the fact that there's been a pandemic i don't know if you noticed you know nearly two thousand open positions and the other interesting thing is that, despite the fact that there is still this kind of London and South England kind of centralization, it's becoming less over time. Like um now more of the industry is elsewhere in the UK than it than it is in London. and that's that's kind of a recent development. so that's cool to see. Um, so yeah, it's just just kind of heartening, heartening news in terms of, jobs they're actually out there people can actually get them you know uh the industry is expanding
2: expanding in every direction it can possibly whiz um and yeah it's great news the fact that there are so many roles opening up across the whole of the country you know and uh colin and the team at games jobs live which includes our very own Mr Gordon in in the interest of full disclosure are doing a great job. So this is going to be a, a regular update that they're producing in terms of, look, here's a snapshot of the number of open roles. And that's really valuable data because as time moves forward, we'll be able to actually gauge exactly how we're doing exactly where we stand in relation to other regions and nations across the whole of the UK so kudos to Colin Uh, we can't wait to see next month and um, obviously fingers crossed if you're in Scotland you're recruiting you should be getting your jobs up on the Scottish Games Network site come on lads what's up with you?
1: so that leads us on to the case study with hyperluminal games and i believe brian this was your one
2: it was indeed it was indeed yes so as part of our ongoing series of case studies that we created in conjunction with in-game the innovation center in dundee uh, we looked at a hyperluminal games uh, a dundee based studio who you might know from the first original release big crown showdown which came out i think it was about 2017 or 18 and they're a really, really lovely bunch. They were started uh, by a, a small team out of Abertay University and they looked around for work for hire, any kind of projects that were that were on the go. Stop, uh, spoke to a lot of the studios around and about the, the sort of the Dundee cluster, so Dundee City out into uh, Tayside and Angus, and picked up little bits and pieces of work. And since then, they've grown and they've grown. I mean, they've doubled their, their turnover and their headcount every year that they've existed including 2020 which is no mean feat when you consider you know pandemic lockdown all sorts of horrible things and it it's it's a perfect case study for how to grow a successful games business because they've gone from you know really small really sort of doing what they can to survive through to now when they're working on titles like Cloud Jumper which is the next yeah. big piece of original IP. They've got another game in development that they uh, they can't really talk about publicly. I had an awfully interesting chat with Stuart, the CEO, about the game. I can't say anything, sorry guys, but it's going to be great. And it could be one to include on our list of games set in Scotland. That's mm-hmm. pretty much all I can say. Uh, so you know the, the team have done fantastically well as a company there were so many really good bits I wanted to try and fit in this case study. You know, it was, sure we were young guys, we were in our 20s, we decided we were a studio and thought, that's it, we'll be retiring millionaires by the time we're 30. Um, and then a week later, we realised, this is hard. Which I thought, right, that's got to be the quote that goes up at the front. <laughs> um, and But you, you know, they went out looking for work for hire, because they thought, this is the only way we're going to make money. And I really loved the pragmatism, because they said, look, it, it's we're going to have people pay us to learn how to make games. And mm. I was like, well, there you go. That is a fantastic approach because they were making money. They were generating revenue. They were keeping the studio going. And at the same time, they were. They were learning how to make video games. And it took them you know, quite a significant amount of time until we got to the point where we thought, actually, here we go. We can make our first original game. And they came yeah. up with Big Crown Showdown. And then had to, you know, go and find a publisher and do all this kind of thing. Read the case study, because if you are a student, if you're studying video games, this is how you do it, guys. This is how you make it work. If you're running your own studio, if you've got aspirations to make video games, go and read the case study. Because it really couldn't be any more of a, a lesson in this is what's important. You know, this is how you do it. Um, you know, Stuart was quite upfront saying, when I started, the, or when we started the studio, I didn't have any business skills. You know, I went to Business Gateway to go and learn about, you know, payroll and taxation and all of the things that he didn't know coming out as a graduate. So uh, I thought it was a fantastically good story. And I'm just I'm delighted that we were able to work with the team at Endgame to, to get it out there and share it with the world.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think yeah. the main takeaway from it is that yeah, exactly what you said. The quote: um, "There is no substitute for hard work, is there?" And I think a lot of people think when they they start making games, it's like, "Oh yeah, well, I'll just I'll slap one together in my f- free time, and then you know it's going to be number one bestseller in the UK, and I'm going to be a millionaire by the end of the week." And it's not quite that simple.
2: Not quite. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they remind me a little bit of um, Medi- Media Tonic. In the sense that they were, they are a company that have been doing things for a long time, kind of, and, and the nature of it being kind of collaborative works or work for hire is that you know that their name's not really out there, but it by the time that they're actually in the spotlight, you know, they're they're such a they're basically a very experienced veteran almost like team. Um, so I can only hope that they enjoy the same kind of success that, that Mediatonic has, has enjoyed yeah uh, in, Mediatonic in is a
2: great Mediatonic is a great example the other one is Rovio you know Rovio who are the, the, uh, the creators yeah. of Angry Birds Angry Birds was their 47th or 48th game and nobody not even the people at Rovio can remember the first forty seven. but you know Angry Birds <laughs> was the one that, that transformed them and they've built on that and they've innovated on that and they're you know they've used that success in a lot of different ways, some successful, some not so, but they're still about, they're still there, they're still doing incredible things. And um, yeah, you know, it, it is possible in 2021 to build and grow an, a successful game studio uh, without, you know, having to have the multi-million pound investment or without having to um, be located in the heart of London. You know, it's totally possible Um, And we have the talent pipeline, you know, we've got seven universities producing games graduates, 11 colleges producing, you know, game development students with HNCs and HNDs. We've got a ton of talent, we just need to be able to turn it into viable businesses.
1: So, talking about striking out on your own, Mark McCready from British Esports has moved on to do his own thing on the side. Um, and I covered that this morning, at the day of recording. It was the Scottish University's Esports Network. Essentially, what Mark's doing is he's creating a space for society heads from across the universities in Scotland to get together to organise competitive gaming tournaments. And what this also means is not only are you sort of seeing competitions between like Aberdeen University and Queen Margaret uh, but you've also got like the idea of, he mentioned that one of the reasons he started it was he, uh, when he, well he is at university right now and he plays Rocket League, he's a massive fan of the game and he just couldn't find people to join a team with at Queen Margaret like he just couldn't find another two people to have a, a Rocket League team with Um, so That's also something that's being addressed with the network is the idea that if you feel like you're the only person at your uni wanting to start a team in a specific game, you can be scouted and recruited from other universities uh, to fill in the gaps, which is really cool. So yeah, like in his case, Rocket League, let's say... RGU, we'll go with some hometown pride. I'm just really doubling down on Aberdeen this week. Um, uh, Let's see, they were looking for one extra Rocket League player uh, to fill out their team. He could be scouted and that's really cool. That's uh, just some really cool ideas. And we spoke to him on the YouTube channel about what that means for the esports community as a whole within Scotland. And he was saying that by bringing all the universities together and having like official leagues or tournaments, teams that aren't quite as big as like the really big names, like Skelp, who are starting their own team and all that, can recruit and scout players from the university circuit before they start getting the sort of the big attention that they get from, like you know, from bigger teams that can offer more money, which, which in turn just makes the the esports scene more competitive, which is always a good thing. If you're watching any sport, then you want, you know, competition and not just the same teams running away with it every year. Isn't that right, Scottish football?
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay, Scotland in competitive sports may not be uh, playing to our strengths in the way that I think people might wish that we did. But when it comes to esports, <laughs> let's be honest, across the whole of the UK, it's still emerging. Nobody's entirely sure whether it's a real thing yet. And by anyone, I mean the media. We all know that it's going to be huge, that it's going to be massive. And what Mark's doing is really admirable. It's connecting people together. And for a small country, we can sometimes have a few issues with communicating and collaborating, especially when it comes to video games. So helping players, helping esports, you know, individuals and teams um, across the whole of Scotland to be a good thing you know it's going to draw people together it's going to give them that little bit more visibility it's going to help people realize where there's talent um and as esports continues to grow this has to be one of the fundamental building blocks in making sure that we're you know part of this and that we're we're helping players come through so it's it's a great first step you know we've got the the universities we've got the colleges you know let's let's celebrate it let's shout about it you know it's not an area that The Scottish Games Network covered in the past because we didn't know what was going on. We weren't talking to people. But now we've got, as you say, we've got Scalp, we've got ADL, uh, we've got Esports Scotland, we've got the Scottish uh, Esports Hub. I I spoke to, to those guys earlier today. There's a ton of stuff going on. So we're going to be shouting about it. We're going to be supporting it. The first Esports in Education Scotland conference happening next week. Uh, on the 24th of March, I think, at which I am speaking because I am a sucker. Anyone comes and asks me to speak at anything and I'll say yes before considering whether or not I know anything about the issue. So, I now have to write a presentation about uh, employment opportunities and careers in esports. So, yeah, there's going to be a bit of Googling going on this weekend, I think.
1: I think that's going to be quite an interesting talk, to be fair, because, yeah, like, esports is growing exponentially, like, even just within the UK. And to mention a story that we reported on, I think it was the start of this year, the um, Dundee Stadium. We're going to get a, an esports, a dedicated esports stadium in. Dundee which is just insane Mm -hmm. and awesome so yeah like I think esports is one to keep an eye on even if you're not necessarily interested in watching them just to see how it grows like yeah just seeing how a a sport grows in popularity and then makes itself sort of relevant in sort of just day-to-day life is really interesting like you know we we obviously none of us were around when football started emerging and started becoming like a professional thing or you know a baseball or whatever but see uh, we're in a unique experience here where we can actually watch a sport grow on a global stage and see where it goes
2: this is very true this is very true and and you know out of all of the games coming out of scotland out of all the studios you know there's probably only one which is Earthbound Games in Dundee, who are sort of focusing on esports-like titles. Is that going to change? Are we going to see more coming through? And you're right, the esports arena in Dundee is going to be um, quietly disruptive, I think. It could really sort of highlight an awful lot of opportunities, and obviously our friends at Abertay and Dundee and Angus College are going to be closely involved with that. So we will be shouting about esports, and we will be covering esports far more often in the near future
1: and that brings us on to the latest story that's been up on the website which was Scotland's new digital strategy and I believe that was also yourself Brian
2: it was it was indeed and I will put my hands up here and say okay this is not strictly related to games but it's entirely relevant because it um, focuses on Scotland's digital future and since a we are in Scotland and b we do digital it's absolutely relevant to pretty much the whole of the ecosystem and so, essentially, Scottish the Scottish government's digital directorate have produced a new strategy um, for Scotland's digital future, making us a far more digital society. And it focuses on people in place, so the provision of high-speed broadband throughout the entire country, um, out into the Highlands and Islands, the you know the r- rural and remote regions, whether it's fixed internet or full 4G, 5G, they have plans to cover everything. It's all inclusive. It's making sure nobody's left behind that people have devices and more importantly, the skill to use those devices. Um, now this ties in very, very closely to the Logan review, the Logan report that came out at the end of 2020, which proposed a root and branch overhaul of education for digital skills, plus the establishment of a national network of tech incubators, plus, you know, revised funding and new funding opportunities for, for tech companies. Again, all of this is directly relevant to the games industry. So essentially, all I wanted to do was highlight, look, this is a really good move. It's ambitious, it's bold, it's transformative, um, and it's something that will set the scene for video games and the whole games ecosystem to contribute. You know, we have so many strengths that we can bring to the table as Scotland tries to innovate its way out of COVID and become a more digital society not just in terms of commercial success you know in 2020 the global games market uh, was worth what 174 billion dollars it's projected to break 200 billion by 2025 and the, the you know the upper limit is stratospheric we, we don't know it could keep going and going from that point point. and the game sector does not need the big expensive upfront capital investment like film or screen does you know we don't need a studio Gives a laptop and a decent broadband connection and we're off so it's really important it's really important that games can contribute uh as i say not just commercially but in terms of how we help to transform education because games in classrooms is a no-brainer surely you know everyone would far rather learn with minecraft and fortnite maybe how to spell fortnite could be high up on the, the list but i just thought it was really <laughs> important to flag this up as a, a, a really ambitious, you know, chance for Scotland to innovate in the future and become far, far more focused on digital. So, yeah, big flag wave from the Scottish Games Network. Well done, guys. We want to be involved. Give us a shout.
1: Oh well, that wraps up the news for this week, uh, or so far anyway, because this goes live on Saturday. So who knows? There might have been a million stories went up on Friday, and we'll cover it next week. But. Without further ado, we should get into today's main topic, which we kind of touched on last week, and we thought we might as well make it a full-length discussion, because it's a big enough topic that it's probably worth about three episodes of a podcast, never mind one. So let's just get into user-generated content. What do you guys have to say on it to start with?
0: Well, um, I, uh, so last last week we were kind of talking about mods and remasters and things like that and how that a lot of that tends to come from kind of community initiatives right so i think that was kind of what got us interested in in this topic and thinking about it and i I just from i mean maybe a place to start with it is kind of the the local angle the scottish angle because there's been quite a few instances of them being successful here i think Um, one being Blazing Griffin in in Glasgow, their kind of studio is built on the back of originally was like a a mod of Half-Life 2. They made the ship uh, and then have then kind of spun that out into the stuff that they're working on now, but kind of building on that same idea. So there's definitely a pipeline from from this kind of like user generated content into building an entire studio that can then, (laughs) you know, they then employ people and things like that. Um, So, Brian, you were saying that that you often find yourself talking about this user-generated content as part of the teaching that you do.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is something that creators of all kinds have to be aware of. And it's not just in video games. You know, if you're an author, then if you do something successful, the chances are somebody somewhere out there is going to write some fan fiction. And that could go in a lot of ways that you didn't anticipate when you created the intellectual property. And how you deal with that is, is very much up to you. Likewise, musicians. You know, you've got mashups, it's, you've got um, different mixes, you've got a whole lot of people out there who, again, if you're successful, will take your content remix it, mash it up, throw it in, you know, into the mix with something else. Is that a bad thing? Are they stealing? Are they, you know, stopping you from deriving revenue from your work? Or are they adding to it? Is it, you know, this, this mash-up culture that we have now that that where everything's fair game as long as it's not necessarily being sold for commercial gain. But obviously in video games, since they are fundamentally a digital product, a digital content type, the tools that you use to make them can be replicated, back engineered, ripped off, or shared, and and used to extend the life of that game. You know, so if you go back to Quake, you know, Quake came out, and and the uh, the very quickly the, the guys at Ed made the tools available um, that they used to build the game, so that people could go and build their own. You know, build new levels, reskin the characters, um, and from there it just snowballed and and to go back to you know my own early years in the games industry when grand theft auto number 1 came out we were contacted by people across the world who were running fan sites and said hey you know we'd like to you know write about this this crazy video game that you've made can we have some stuff and it was like well okay what kind of stuff mm-hmm, you know artwork so i i pulled together texture packs and some of the car Um, skins, car models, bits and pieces like that, and sent it to them because it made sense to me that you would support the people who wanted to say nice things about you. But again, this was based entirely on naivety because this hadn't really been done at that point. Um, And before long, they had not only built fan sites and used official artwork and everything, they had started to build their own tools that in a lot of ways were superior to the ones that the poor level designers at DMA had to build the original game. And so within a year of the game coming out, despite not having released any development tools, people were, you know, reskinning cars and making their own maps and producing hover cars and mashing up Wipeout and GTA and doing the craziest stuff. And, you know, there was this big discussion and debate going on at the time. Um, I think, I seem to remember, it was a long time ago, uh, that uh, BMG were a bit, disgusting and a bit outraged and, and weren't very keen on this because it was their intellectual property ish whereas we at dma were a bit more who's it hurting you know they've got to buy the game in order to use this you know they're not they're not destroying the original intellectual property they're just making more of it so they're playing more of the game are we crazy does this sound um But, of course, since then, more and more games have released the development tools just specifically to allow um, players to make their own models, make their own levels, create new content, um, because it keeps them engaged with the game for longer. And indeed, some games out there have come to rely on it as a fundamental part of their overall business model. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just purely for, for gaming. You can use game engines for a whole lot of other purposes. Um, you can make music videos, you can make animation. You know, the whole Machinima um, kind of trend that was one of the biggest YouTube channels in the early days of YouTube. The, the term Machinima was created here in Scotland, um, in Edinburgh, by a guy called Hugh Hancock, who was a real pioneer, uh, sadly no longer with us. But, but he innovated the use of using games engines for animation. You know, so Rooster Teeth and all of the, the stuff that they've published in, in the last 20 years. Again, sorry to sound like a broken record, guys, but, you know, directly inspired by Scotland. Code Team Scotland!
1: Hey! <laughs> I looked into this uh, about, like, you know, fan animations and stuff. And, you know, obviously Red vs. Blue from uh, Rooster Teeth is sort of the big one. And they got 282 episodes out of Red vs. Blue and out of that idea of... Just making, I'm making it almost a comedy show, like comedy TV show, but in Halo, and just sort of, you know, record like screen recording and getting your characters just to like move their head up and down as they're talking, and like yeah, like it's a massive like in- internet like phenomenon, and you know anyone who's involved in gaming has at least heard of Red versus Blue, if not watched a few episodes and, you know, there's people who have watched all of them, you know, it's just, it, it's quite an interesting idea to be able to make things in game engines, but building on that a little bit, just about how like easy it is, like how it's a bit easier to make animations and stuff using pre-existing stuff like a video game, I think fan fiction kind of ties into that and about how See if you're wanting to start off writing, you know, you're, you're wanting to start writing creative, ri- creatively. Sometimes it can be intimidating, especially if you're writing from a sci-fi or fantasy perspective where everything you're, like, you know, your world is just as important as your characters and the rules of that world need to be solid before you do anything else. The idea of fan fiction... Really helps out people who are starting out because the chances are you're not going to write fanfiction about something that you only have a passing interest in it. And so you already know all the world's rules and the likes, dislikes, flaws of every character. We've got you've already got well-rounded characters to work with, and you just need to impose your story on it. And so like it, it's user-generated content is often a really good place to start for people who either are, yeah, are just starting out or have limited resources and they can just work with what they have and what already exists to make the thing that they want to do, which is just, it's always cool and seeing more stuff is just great, you know, the more options we have the better.
2: Oh, well, look, this is, this is the reality, if you create something that's popular, your fans are going to want to engage with it. You know, we're not in an age now where people are happy being passive consumers. You know, especially in the games and digital world where people feel as though they're part of this. But even out into literature, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. If you go way, way back, if you've, and I know this is going to be a cultural reference, I'm going to check with you guys. Have you heard of the Bronte sisters?
1: Yes. Yes, yes, I have,
2: yes. Just checking, you know, it's like I have made some cultural references in the past that have completely floored you, but... (laughs) I don't know if I go back a couple of centuries, you're fine. Okay, good. Um, so the Bronte sisters, believe it or not, were big on fan fiction. So they actually wrote stories featuring Arthur Wellesley, a.k.a. the Duke of Wellington. So he was fighting the Peninsular War, fighting off Napoleon at the time, going off being all heroic. And the Bronte sisters were totally crushing on him and were writing fan fiction with all of these these um, big battles where he was the hero and everything. Mental. Right, but it was fan fiction, and so this is the thing. It, it's called fan fiction because it's your your biggest fans. It's the people who care. You know, you should be grateful that you've made something that, in this you know content saturated world, that people are are engaging with. And if you'll give them permission, if you say, "Well, go ahead, guys, knock yourself out," very quickly, what they're doing is is will outstrip your original. Now, it, look, let's look at Harry Potter. Now, whatever your opinion on the author, and there's a lot that has been said, but way back when, you know, she said that, um, go right ahead. You know, you're writing Harry Potter stuff. Go nuts. You know, just be respectful of the uh, the actors because a lot of the Harry Potter stuff went in some very strange areas. Yeah. Um, but J.K. Rowling is now responsible for less than 1% of all the Harry Potter fiction in the world today you know she only wrote seven books there are some fan fiction authors who have you know done 10 times that amount regard you know and however questionable the content or however high or low the quality it's it's a testament to the power of that universe that franchise that fandom that people want to engage you know and count yourself lucky i only mentioned harry potter i'm staying the hell away from the morass that is twilight because whoa (laughs) You know, and and one of the one of the primary um, writers of Twilight fan fiction. Anyone want to finish this story?
1: Yeah, it was the writer of Fifty Shades of Grey, wasn't it?
2: Bing.
1: Yep. Yeah, that started out as a fan fiction. Right, as much as we can make fun of Fifty Shades of Grey, um, this is for the first time in my life I'm waiting to go and defend it. It shows, like, that like fan fiction has a place, right? You know, what I mean say what you like about the writing quality or, you know, the story as a whole or whatever, it was an international bestseller and literally everyone in the world was talking about it at one point. So, you know, fan fiction definitely has some validity, even if it is that particular series of books. But, you know, like, I think it does go a ways sort of supporting the idea of writing fan fiction and you can make something of it. Mm
2: -hmm. So this is my point is that if you have created something that picks up a a group of fans, if you have created something that people care about, they want to engage with it. Um, And that's true whether you're a musician, whether you're an author, whether you're an artist, screenwriter, director, or a game developer. You know, people will want to engage and make more. And giving them the tools, giving them the go-ahead, is a smart thing to do. Because we've seen what happens with The Alternative where you get cease and desist letters, you know, lawyers walking around Comic-Con and everyone who's dressed as a particular character gets a cease and desist, you know, photocopy that just says, no, this is our intellectual property, which seems like a very, very short sighted and, you know, short-term way of, of really pissing off your biggest fans.
1: Well, that's it. Like, if you feel if your fans feel like every time they put hard work into something, you're just kicking sand in their face, they're gonna just start uh, move to something else, aren't they? It doesn't matter how much they enjoy what you made. You know, like, let's say Skyrim and Dragon Age. Let's say every time someone made something about Skyrim, Bethesda, you know, shot them down and, you know, told them to get in the bin. But then every time someone made something about Dragon Age, Bioware leaned into it and were like, yeah, go for it, you know, knock yourself out, you know, make things within our universe if you want. The people who are inclined to make that type of content will gravitate towards the latter rather than the former, because they're not willing to take the risk of, oh yeah, I can put, you know, hours of work into this fan animation just for me to get a notification on YouTube saying that I violated copyright and I've got a claim on my channel now. You know, it's just, it's it's not worth it. So, yeah, I don't ever understand why people get so riled up about their own, about, like, community-generated content with their own stuff. Like, I get, obviously, anything that sort of kicks off in a way that, you know, does get its own user-generated content, you must have had to put a lot of time into it yourself. However... I always feel like, you know, no, no one can do anything to the original. You know, like, let's say it is Skyrim, now I, I don't know how Bethesda are on user-generated content. Uh, well they lean into it, don't they, because it's quite a big modding community, but just as like an example, if Bethesda were against it, yeah, no one can touch Skyrim. Like, you know, when people go and buy it in the shop, it is Skyrim. It's not ever gonna be anything else, no matter what someone writes or, you know, mods or whatever. So I never understand why people are so against that. Yeah.
0: So Bethesda I think Bethesda, I think is a really interesting one in that I think they are kind of pioneers in a way in that number one, they number one, obviously they've supported it. But they also mm, I don't know, it would be maybe not a few years after Skyrim came out, they briefly offered people making mods the ability to charge for their mods and, and for their for their fan creations. And Basically, the community cried foul and said, "This is terrible," and it didn't end up happening. I think that there's that, that, like, I mean, they're very much, they were very much ahead of their time because I mean, we've seen Valve do it with selling like the Black Mesa mod. There is definitely, you know, there's so much. There's so much people are putting so much time into this, and it's like real work hours. And you know, it's it's nice for people to be able to get experience and stuff from making mods and things like that. But in a lot of cases, the companies are then taking some of this stuff back in and like, bringing it into the, you know, if you think of something like Overwatch, like they've obviously fed off of the community create stuff, and then that informs it. And there's some cases where the people's work is getting remunerated, but it's not always the case, right? So you would hope that there can be more opportunities for people to actually also, you know, make a living doing the, doing mm-hmm. the sort of fan, fan-generated stuff, right?
2: So there's there's a couple of really good points there, Andrew. One is that um, the whole relationship between unofficial fan-generated, user-generated content and official releases has got a bit of a patchy history in terms of, uh, you know, hang on, you can't charge for this because it was made by fans, as though that's somehow a differentiator, as though they shouldn't be paid.
1: That, yeah, I was just wanting to interject with that and say it's funny that you should say that because Sonic Mania, arguably one of the biggest sort of Sonic games of recent years, started off as a fan game, didn't mm-hmm. it? Like, you know, and then, uh, like, so, like, you know, and that's still being sold today, it's not free, you know, it's, it was published by Sega, and yeah, that's because Team Sonic like took the guys on board, but that's a, essentially that's a fan game, like, it started off online as a fan game, and you We've
2: know, you've got lots of examples, yeah, you can, lots of. I mean, look at one of the most popular esports games out there at the moment, Counter Strike. Counter Strike yeah, started Half Life. So yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and we've had numerous examples. Uh, you mentioned Black Mesa, which is a frame-by-frame remake of Half Life in the Half Life Two engine. Um, and given the way that Valve are going, it's probably as close as we'll ever get to Half Life Three. Oh. Come we're on, a, fans! We're official. You
1: know, um, we're official games media now. We've mentioned Half-Life Three, Now that's that.
2: Uh, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. so. You know, but the, there are examples of of mods and fan-created content which has led directly to not just the team being employed, but the game being commercialized and released. Uh, you know, and, and Counter-Strike, I think, is is almost a perfect example. Which is, hey, we've got an engine. We're going to do something. You know, repurpose it a little bit. You know, it wasn't a, a ground-up redesign, but it did something different, and it did it well enough that it's still one of the most popular online games played today. And we, I mean, that was for what 10, 12, 14 years ago that it was originally. Um, it originally came out as a mod. And, and and this is the thing. You know, modding is a perfectly acceptable route into game development. You know, if you're going out there and you're you're not learning, you know, C-sharp, C-plus, JavaScript, whatever, but you want to get your hands dirty, modding is a really good way to decide whether or not game development's for you. You know, I've got a stepson who's been doing an awful lot of modding and who's been teaching himself bits of Java, you know, bits of scripting, just specifically so that he can go out and actually get his hands dirty and try and make, uh, you know, entirely new effects and entirely new spells for some of the games that he's he's really enjoying at the moment and on the back of that he's kind of gone no i don't want to go into games development yeah. which you know is totally That's fine fair. but but for a lot of people if you don't have a college near you a university near you you can still go on something like ModDB, which is moddb.com and find a team who are looking for some help And you don't have to be a programmer or an artist, you know, you can ask them if they need some help with narrative design and writing, you can ask them if they're looking for any music or audio, you can ask them for whatever it is that your particular specialism, your particular skills or talents happen to be. But, you know, I I think it's a really rich and vibrant part of the game's ecosystem that, that doesn't always get the recognition it deserves.
1: Yeah, I think we're skating around quite a big topic here in the sense that we're mentioning a lot of Valve properties, but we're not mentioning Gary's Mods.
2: Well, that wasn't intentional, we absolutely should, because I mean, Gary's Mod is the, is the king hell granddaddy of all of the, here's a toolset that lets you go and do some crazy things. So much, and, and used in so many different circumstances to, to do incredibly clever things you know we're talking music videos we're talking fun animations we're talking you know playing straight up insanity because you can adjust (laughs) it and and do almost anything to to uh, change and affect the world
1: yeah no like I, i don't i'm not too sure like i wouldn't say this is a hard fact here but i'm pretty sure most game modes if not all game modes on gary's mod are User-generated and haven't been touched by Valve, like you know, your TTT and murder and stuff like that. That's all user-generated, which is quite interesting. Like you know, and even within that, you've got like user-generated content that is fan fiction or you know, sort of recreating something else. Like uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of the Creepy Pasta SCP, but um, oh yes, yeah, the idea of it's like yeah, like a prison for like monsters and stuff like that. And there's a Gary's Mod game that's actually had really, like, quite a lot of fun. I think it's called SCP Containment Breach. And yes. it's quite yeah. Dead by Daylight kind of inspired and stuff like that. But I think it was quite ahead of its time because I think it was before a lot of those games and before even, like, Evolve and stuff mm-hmm. where essentially one player will take control of the escaped monster. And I think there's three or four that, like, the you can random- randomly be selected to become... And the rest of you are um soldiers sent in to sort of contain it. Mm-hmm. And the idea is like you'll you'll very rarely actually kill this thing. You'll you know, the idea is you're trying to just like do some jobs around the facility to like lock it down and then try to get out and close the doors before it can escape. But like that's that's in a unique position where it's it's user generated content using a user generated content tool. You know, it's like it's pulling in stuff from, using assets from the Source engine, which is associated with, like, you know, uh, Portal and Half-Life and Left for Dead and stuff, and is creating something based on a popular piece of fiction online, which is just, it's really cool.
2: And again, I think there's there's a, a real audience out there and a, and a real kind of culture around the whole idea of modding. And whatever Source it comes from, and the SCP is a great example because... Yeah, you know, you, you can pull inspiration from wherever. And if you look hard enough in the modding scene, you'll find games that kind of take the fanfiction approach. And so they'll use a game engine, but then they'll set it in Westeros, or they'll set it in, you know, another fantasy setting, you know, from somewhere. Uh, I'm keeping my eyes open, so I'm hoping like hell someone out there somehow has basically created Ian M. culture within a mod of a game that I own, so I can play it, obviously. But... You know, it's like, until we get to the point where we can get, you know, licensing and something cool done with this, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of real um, interesting ideas coming out of the mod scene. Um, And, you know, the, the game sector has really driven this, has pioneered it. It's by sort of saying, look, here's the engine, go nuts, it's opened the door and it's given people permission. To go and and explore and express themselves, and I would be really surprised if some of the you know the well-known game designers, game developers that we have right now didn't get a start in the modding community, but are maybe just keeping quiet yeah. about
0: it. Yeah, I suppose we could just do examples all day, but but one again just covered the Scottish connection that comes to my mind is um, Dan Pinchbeck with Deus mm-hmm. um, Esther being uh, another another kind of Half-Life a game. Mod. But I, I think mod, yeah. that kind of ties in. Yeah, well, and it ties into what we were saying. It's really, I think the the fan fiction kind of like metaphor is like really strong about how you were saying, Ryan, about you don't have to kind of worry about the world building and stuff. You know, here's someone with a theater background who, you know, has some, some kind of like technical knowledge, but having, you know, having a mod and basically having all of that stuff there for you and you can just focus on, I'm going to make a narrative game. And then in that, because you don't have to worry about the rest of it, can make something that basically pioneers a a genre essentially like um opens an entirely new door and it's because you're building on top of something else instead of having to you know think from the beginning how do i build a how do i build an entire game to tell this story you've got the tools there you just put it to use in an interesting way
1: yeah and i think that sometimes people associate fan fiction and user generated content with low budget you know made in your flat just on the cheap you know like in your spare time but you know like Nathan Fillion of Firefly fame that is the television program and not the studio based in both London Connecticut and Aberdeen is um he created a fan film where uh, he's a massive fan of the Uncharted franchise and there's this really great I think it's about 10-15 minute long fan film where he plays Nathan Drake and, you know, so like, that's really cool. And I think that was his way of trying to campaign for getting the role, but it still counts as user generated content. And I think it goes to show that you don't, like, it's not necessarily just, you know, people who don't have the budget or, you know, are just making it for a bit of fun that, need, like, that can make user generated content. It can be a, a valid sort of approach to getting a foothold in whatever industry it is you want. And that you know goes for like voice acting or whatever. If you find like someone who's making a mod and like they need new NPCs, then like voice actors can get involved and narrative designers and like there's there's just quite an awful lot of uh, range in user generated content for people to get a start in the industry.
2: I think there seems to be a bit of prejudice about it, as though um, by using somebody else's technology or by using somebody else's IP. You're not really creating something, and I think we kind of need to nip that in the bud because uh, creating a game is creating a game. You know, if you go back to the dim and distant prehistoric past when I started, game engines didn't exist. You know, it, it was everybody at the start of the the game, the, the first bit of the project was building the engine to run it because this was pre Unreal and pre Unity. You know, if you were lucky, um, you started something just when Criterion Renderware. Was available on the market, and then you know EA acquired them, and it kind of became a bit behind closed doors. So, using somebody else's game engine should not be seen as um, somehow less worthy than developing on Unreal or Unity. And then similarly, if you're doing something and you're releasing it, but it's not for commercial gain, and you're sticking it out on Mod DB, is that different to releasing a free-to-play game on the App Store? You know. It, it depends. It really, really does depend. And if you look again at some of the examples, That Games Company started off as a student team and they did a, a little online Flash game called Flow. Um, I thought it sucked, but, you know, Sony clearly saw something in it because they took them in-house in the Santa Monica studio and said, <laughs> you are now our official That Games Company. So, you know, that worked. And uh, the team um, at Valve again, who did Portal. It was originally a student game called Nabacular Drop, um, and Valve saw it and kind of went, ooh, that, that's quite nice. Yeah, I, I think we need to kind of get over the idea that somehow um, modding games or making your own user-generated content is not as creative or not necessarily as valid as yeah. going and starting from scratch.
1: You know, just going back to um, Portal there for a second, the reason that Portal looks the way it does and it's set in the Aperture Science Facility was because they borrowed assets from Half-Life. Um, essentially, if you look at the original sort of, yeah, Nebular Drop, it was it was like you were in a dungeon and you were saving a princess, or you were a princess. I can't I can't remember the specifics, but it was quite fantasy sort of inspired, and everything was quite like redstone walls and stuff. And um, yeah, the reason that they changed that aesthetic when they moved over to like you know when Valve did take them over was because they didn't have the budget to say we're going to make all these new assets and all these new textures and stuff so they decided to use, they decided to shift the story and change it to something that would be similar or would have similar locations to something that they'd made already and that's why they went with Portal being set in the Aperture Science facility is because, you know, they already had the stuff for Black Mesa Science facility so it's not exactly as difficult to move over, which um, yeah. So like, if Valve can do it in house, then why can't we do it with you know?
2: Portal is is a particular favourite and a particular example I use a lot because it's an exercise in you know constrictions. There's one human character in that game, and it's a first person game. The only time you ever see her is if you walk past something reflective. You know, the, the only other things that you get there are are the turrets. You get a companion cube. It's a box with a heart on it. Right, and it's but it's
1: and still the, it's one of the most beloved characters in video games.
2: Exactly it so and I'll GLaDOS like a dialogue. Yeah, you know, GLaDOS started off as a text-to-speech synthesizer because again, budget restrictions, time, etc etc. But it's the writing, it's the actual the creative direction of that game that takes it from a confusing 3D puzzler through to the recipient of what? However many game of the year awards it picked up, you know. Mm-hmm. It was dozens. Um, so it's it's a thing of joy and a thing of beauty but that's sort of getting off the topic ever so slightly
0: e- e- Ever so slightly in, in the sense that I think the fact that they were able to lean into those other aspects of Portal like like the, the narrative side of it that w- was the thing that set it apart was probably you know a product of the fact that they didn't have to you know they had the extra kind of space to experiment with that kind of stuff again in, in the similar ways to what we were talking about because the, so much of the work was done already you can kind of you know you've got that extra kind of pipeline or whatever to, to use so I, I don't think it is totally unrelated
1: quite a good phrase that I like to use a lot when it comes to sort of making anything is restrictions don't limit creativity it sort of broadens it in the sense that like if you if you start a project let's say let, I mentioned that earlier trying to write like a fantasy story starting off writing a fantasy story you have to spend so long trying to come up with like all the different rules for your world and everything and you have got so many options that you're probably going to miss a lot of good ones that you have like or good ideas that you have because you're glossing over them and trying to think of something else whereas yeah like if you've got a slightly limited scale to that whether that's like budgetary or yeah like in terms of you know if you're making a, a mod you know you can only use the assets that are there you're forced to think in a more creative manner in order to get what you want and sort of make things work in the way you do. And by doing that, you often come up with more creative ideas.
2: I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, it was uh, way back at DMA Design, Gary Penn, who was the creative director, had a program for the testers to help them learn game design. And he would give them weekly challenges, you know, with things that were ridiculously constrained. You know, create a game that only uses one button. Create a game that only uses two colours. You know, and it forces you to think an awful lot more creatively. And, um, yeah, you know, it's if you don't have mad programming skills or you're not a really talented artist and you're using, okay, these are the assets I've got, it can help you to sort of find a new way of approaching things or you have to be a little bit more innovative and creative, so... I don't think it's a bad thing at all, you know, and, and producing something that um, uses other assets. Uh, if you remember back when Flappy Bird came out, you know, it was, and it went insanely popular, you know, totally viral. Um, and, you know, one of the criticisms was that he's just stolen graphics out of Mario. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember ever, you know, uh, what was it, And uh, I'm not even gonna pronounce, uh, attempt the pronunciation. I don't think he ever claimed that it was all original. It was just, it was a nice, simple little game that he kind of threw together. But there, we we can sometimes suffer from a little bit of snobbery when it comes to the game sector. And the thing you is, know, as well... You've got the whole yeah. real games thing.
1: Well, the thing is, as well, I was going to say, it was just... Um... Like you can't say that. You know, even though yeah, it's got the pipes from Mario and stuff. You couldn't look at Mario and Flappy Bird side by side and go, yeah, he's just copied the game. Like the, you'd be a moron to think that that's what he's done. Yeah, he's like he's copied the pipe design and everything, but other than that, and maybe like the background looks kinda similar to World One One sort of Mushroom Kingdom aesthetic, but you know he, he made an independent uh, game that was maybe not wholly original but definitely unique enough to make a break for itself and you know sort of explode onto the mobile scene
2: yeah well what what is original out there you know if you're doing an rts game then you're ripping off you know june 2000 or command and conquer if you're doing a tower defense game if you do i mean if you could Patent game ideas, game concepts. We would have one first-person shooter. We would have one racing game. You know, thank God we can't. Um, it's how you take a core mechanic or a control system, and how you innovate with it. You know, within that that particular constraint. And um, so, yeah, I think again, we we tend to find that um, far too often we're, we're dismissive of particular types of game, or particular platforms, or particular approaches, because they're somehow not real oh. games, or it's not real game development.
1: The thing is, it's not even, yeah, like, independent developers or modders that suffer from that. I think, remember when Overwatch came out, people were speaking yep. about how, oh, it's just the TF2 clone, and, you mm-hmm. know, it's just, because it happens to also be a hero-based shooter, uh, with, a you know, with objective-based gameplay. Oh, it is a tf2 clone and you know looking back at it now it's quite ridiculous that people were saying that considering it was a it was a game that near enough to find a gen- generation in terms of you know multiplayer like, online shooters and for like, for that initial response you know it does just i think it is just it's very easy to rile up the video game community and i think the problem is yeah what the snobbery is exactly you hit the nail on the head brian like some people just go oh that's that's not a real game because it's not what i'm thinking i want right now
2: exactly so exactly so and and it's how can i put this um i'm trying to find a way to be diplomatic yet respectful it's fucking stupid It's what it is
1: <laughs> yeah right? no, i'll give you
2: that Mobile gaming is killing the games industry is it Is mobile you know home taping is killing the music industry it's nonsense the games industry is bigger than it's ever been it's the games industry is constantly changing and evolving the one constant in the video game sector is change but a lot of people seem to want a return to the golden days which presumably was what the late 90s early 2000s where if you wanted a game you had to go into a shop buy it in a box and we didn't have this filthy, non-dedicated platform nonsense with mobiles and smart TVs and streaming, streaming, streaming's never going to work, streaming's not the future of video games. Um, For a sector which has been constantly changed by technology, not just new platforms, new business models, new revenue streams, new audiences, new ways of engaging and playing, we're really bad at spotting the future trends. And it's remember when vr was going to be the future of video games we were all going to die because we would be locked into our little headsets yeah that's right around the corner guys right around the corner
1: oh
0: everything's a way to go very sword art online in a minute i'll tell you i can't wait bring <laughs> it on <laughs> i think if anything it's kind of the opposite almost the opposite way around it in, in some ways and that uh, you know we're having this discussion about like um mods and and and, and fan created content and you know there's the kind of fear from companies that maybe uh, it'll undermine the value of their thing or something like that or, or they'll end up losing potential revenue but it happens the other way around all the time and mm-hmm. you know obviously like an example like like PUBG, g again something that was a mod originally i think mod of arma, arma 2 maybe yeah i think it was arma. um yeah but um and, and made from just assets and stuff I mean, obviously, PUBG did very well, but in 10 years' time, the things we're going to remember are Fortnite and Apex Legends and the various other Battle Royale games. And F- PUBG is historically important, but it's not the one that made the most money and it's going to be... And that's, you know, do, do they think twice about taking someone else's idea and using it? No. <laughs> so, like, you can't you can't kind of have it both ways.
1: Well, that's it. And Fortnite really pivoted as well because if you remember when Fortnite first came out, it wasn't free to play, and it was uh, sort of like four like it was almost Left 4 Dead in the sense like you had four players working cooperatively, and you built a fort or you defended a fort. It was almost like a, fir- a third person shooter tower defense game, and there was like zombie type things that came to attack. And then when you know player unknowns battlegrounds did so well they built that as a tacked-on free-to-play thing because the game wasn't selling well and they wanted something to get themselves back in the limelight. And, you know, that I think it worked better than they ever thought it would because now people only know about the free-to-play bit. But, yeah, like, yeah, if, if Epic can sort of borrow ideas, exactly, Andrew, you know, like, why can't the rest of us?
2: I think you've, you know, again there's numerous examples and there are so many ways in which pretty much every developer has has utilized ideas from somewhere else. You know, I, you'd only have to look at the genres again and you and see that, okay, you can still take a match-three game and do something clever and creative and innovative with it. You know, it was when um, Unreal Tournament came out. It's It was, oh my God, I can't believe they've just cloned Quake. But very quickly, people played it and went, oh! actually this is really cool and you know this, there were a whole different range of weapons and different kind of capabilities but within the first person shooter genre Well, and it, it was an arena battle so you know I, again i think as an industry we kind of we were too prone to being swayed by the you know the the, the playing population it's like oh my god this is an outrage no well, no it's but, not let's, let's calm I- down
1: the first person shooter genre started out as being called Wolfenstein clones, and then it was mm. Doom clones. And, you know, now it's arguably the biggest genre in gaming. Like, if you ask someone, you know, like on the street that's never played a video game to name one, the chances are one of the first ones they're going to mention is Call of Duty, you know? And then it's the same with, uh, like, open world crime sandboxes. Oh, they're all GTA clones, but then. Look at where, like, yes, yeah, Saints Row. You could argue that like, the first game was very much aping on that kind of format, um, but then they went in their own direction with it. And then, by you can't say that Saints Row 4 and GTA 5 are are the same game. Like, you just can't. Very, very different titles, but they started with a similar premise of yeah, like an open world sandbox that you can do whatever you like and, and let's face it if you give a gamer uh, a space where there's lots of squishy civilians and fun guns then uh, what are they gonna do you
2: know well if you give people the, the the means to produce something to create something then you have to be aware that at some point possibly measurable in seconds somebody is going to make something objectionable there's an industry phrase called time to cock which is how soon after we put this tool, forgive me, <coughs> um, into the hands of users, is somebody going to create an enormous penis? And it is normally really, really quick. If it's not the first thing that's created with this this, this new um, tool, <coughs> then it's going to be one of the first five. You can absolutely guarantee it. But this is one of the risks when you look at putting the 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 means of production in the hands of the proletariat it's someone is going to make something filthy possibly objectionable and then within a very short space of time racist
1: today we have been covering user generated content and unless you guys have anything else significant to add i'll take that as a no, no
2: always no. always just trying to stop me <laughs> oh well what we'll no, do I, is we'll I, set
1: up a wee live stream for you brian and that'll just always be running <laughs> and you could just you know come in and out of shot every so often and just tell us something about <laughs> and you another should- thing <laughs> yeah
2: yeah no we'll we can do, do that, that.
0: we could do that yeah no like just always I'm, live I'm on youtube definitely i would say that i'm definitely interested to hear what everybody else has to say though
1: yeah 100 um, and so yeah like Please, if you have something to say about this topic, let us know. Get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, Skywriting, whatever you personally want to do to contact us, then feel free. Um, Yeah, we're not difficult to to- Leave your
0: feedback in a Doom mod.
1: Yes, do that. Make a mod. Oh, please. Do you know, Is Happy Wheels still a thing? I remember people used to make Happy Wheels levels for like specific YouTubers and stuff they liked. Just, if you want to do that, if you want to write notes in the background of Happy Wheels levels, I'll, uh, throughout next week I'll keep searching SGN and Scottish Games Network on the levels to see if there is one. <laughs> But yeah, like please feel free to get in touch and tell us what you think, because it this is quite a big topic and it is something that we've not covered everything. We're not going to claim that we've covered everything. So if you have a topic that you want us to discuss further, then let us know as well, and we can always get round to that after we come up after we speak about all the other topics that we've mentioned today.
0: It would be good to like include people's responses and things like actually on the program and and talk about them and stuff, right? Like have a more kind of circular you know we we hear our own opinions all the time so it'd be good to hear what everybody else has to say and kind of include some of that because we i mean especially on the facebook stuff group and stuff we get we do get some like good comments so like the more that we can incorporate that the better i think would be really cool
1: yeah definitely we're going to create user-generated content on our uh, on our podcast (laughs) there we go this That's is it how guys. like this things is
2: it back. we don't just want this to be all about us we want to hear from you we want to hear whether you think user generated content is a good thing or a bad thing your favorite games which have used it reasons why you don't include it in your own games um do you think that modding is actually a valid route into the industry or should we look down and spit upon filthy modders because they're not real game developers we would love to know more because this is just us all chatting you know now admittedly being as as long in the industry as i have this is rock rock solid 100 percent true you know set of data and facts that you're receiving this afternoon but we know that the games industry has a lot of different opinions and we would like to hear yours and unless it is truly ridiculous we promise probably not to mock it live on air but yeah tell us your thoughts yeah
1: definitely so um Speaking of user-generated content, actually, we should head straight into the spotlight this week and I thought we should mention Wallmaster on TikTok, our uh, friend of the show Ali Lowe. Um, Now, the reason I wanted to mention Ali was because, A, I don't think he speaks about his TikTok very often, I only, I think I only came across it because he shared a video of it on Instagram and I don't think it said anything about that it started off on TikTok, so we're promoting it here. Uh, Yeah, and he he did something throughout January where he 3D modelled a new thing every day and he made, like, additional things to go with his Zelda statues and so I was like, ah, that kind of ties in with user-generated content and any time we can promote the terrific work that Ali does, then we're going to do it. So, yeah, go check that out. It's wallmaster on TikTok. Link will be in the show notes or, you know, just search... Uh, W-A-L-L-M-A-S-T-E-R. That wraps up the Scottish Games Network podcast for this week. Uh, As always, we've been your hosts. I've been Ryan. I've been Brian. And I've been Andrew. Thank you ever so much for watching and we shall see you next time.
2: Take care, folks. We'll catch you on the next one.